Hello and welcome to the Great Books Podcast. Today we'll talk about Oedipus Rex by Sophocles. I'm your host, John J. Miller of National Review, and you're listening to a production of National Review. Our guest is James Brandon, a professor of theater at Hillsdale College, also a director of student plays here. He's podcasted with us previously on The Seagull by Anton Chekhov and Mother Courage and Her Children by Bertolt Brecht. He joins us in the studio as we record from Hillsdale College's campus radio station, WRFH in Michigan. James, welcome back to the Great Books Podcast. Thanks for having me, John, and I'm thrilled to uh, talk about Sophocles' classic great book, Oedipus. Why is Oedipus Rex by Sophocles a great book? Well, perhaps first and foremost, it's just the staying power that it has, not just as a piece of literature, but as a performance, right? I've, I've had the opportunity in my life to be in it. I've directed it. I've seen it on stage a number of times, and those productions always work. We've got this play that's 2,400 years old, and it still works for a modern audience today. It just shows that we haven't changed all that much in a lot of the ways that make us human. And I think Oedipus is one of those scary plays that speaks to that part of us. We're going to talk about all of that, the famous characters, the famous conundrum of this play, how it's performed, how it's performed in the past, how it's performed now. We'll connect it to Sigmund Freud, hmm. Aristotle, a lot more. James, let's just jump right into the story in the opening scene of this play. Oedipus, who is the king of Thebes, receives a report on a terrible blight that's killing the crops and the cattle and the people, and he's starting to take steps to solve the problem. What happens? Yeah, our way into the play are our petitioners coming, hoping that he will save them from this plague, which they're sure was brought on by one of the gods. Uh, they trust Oedipus because Oedipus helped them out in a tight spot before. city had been tortured by uh, the Sphinx, and Oedipus solves the famous riddle of the Sphinx. That's what led to him becoming king of Thebes. And so he did, did it before. They're hoping he can do it again. And when, you know, when they come to him, he says, hey, I'm, I'm already on it. I sent my brother-in-law, Creon, to the Oracle to find out what's going on here. And, and, and so what's an Oracle? Help us understand what is this thing in Greek culture, Greek religion, and what does it do in the play? Oracle of Delphi was supposed to be the place where people could go to talk to the gods. And it's one of those things where um, we believe that the Oracle is actually over some volcanic vents uh, and that the gases uh, induced hallucinations among the priests and priestesses there. So people would go to the Oracle with questions for the gods and they would get you know, I think in our parlance, typical sort of vague fortune teller answers that they, you know, it's sort of like acting on your horoscope, I, I think is maybe the best way. Um, but it's it's like of central importance and uh, it's a shrine uh, to the god Apollo. And so that tells us, I think, from the beginning that Apollo is going to have a part in this story. So Oedipus is our king. There's this plague. He's like, I got this. and I'm going to go Consult the gods, as one does if you're Greek. He sends Creon off to do that. Creon comes back with the message. When, when, when he cracks open the Greek fortune cookie, so to speak, what, <laughs> what, what does he say? Well, he says that the problem is there is an unclean person living in Thebes. The prior king, King Elias, had been murdered on the road, and they never found out who the killer was. And so... 
the Oracle has said the killer is in Thebes. And you're going to find out that it's somebody that was born in Thebes, not necessarily raised there. And until this person is cast out, the plague will continue. So it really begins with a murder investigation. Actually, it really begins with a cold case. You know, this this probably happens based on how many children Oedipus has at this point, 15 to 20 years prior. And so we're really digging into an old story. So I wonder who the killer could be, right? (laughs) The audience knows. Yeah. This is a myth that's been around pre-Homeric. So the Greeks knew the story walking into the theater. And I, I mean, I'm sure there were, you know, younger people or people who hadn't been familiar with it. But yeah, everybody knows where this is going. Uh, It's like going to see, you know, Titanic, right? You know, you know, when you walk into the theater that, you know, spoiler alert, the ship's going to sink. Everyone knows that Oedipus is in fact the person that he ends up looking for. When does Oedipus begin to suspect the truth? There's going to be a revelation. Suddenly he knows everything, but, but there, there, there are moments, right? When he starts to wonder. Well, it gets dumped on him really early because after they get this, message from the oracle they decide you know we're not really sure what to do with this so i've also sent for tiresias another famous theban tiresias is a seer a prophet and we'll ask him to sort it all out and it's sort of like i I guess it would be like i was telling my students the other day it'd be like witnessing a miracle and then going to find your pastor or priest to explain it to you like what did i see what was going on here that sort of thing and so tiresias is coming in as kind of an expert witness and he is unwilling to talk about the subject and Oedipus gets angry and he presses him and he presses him. And so here in the first real conflict of the play, Tiresias basically says, it's you, you're the one you're looking for. So he has the truth. And before, before he does that though, he says, Oedipus really don't go there. Don't seek the truth. Every possible warning that um, he could give him. Of course, it depends on which version you're looking at in translation, but Tiresias is very clear. This is not something you want to do. You know, beware. And Oedipus is, uh, you know, one of Oedipus's problems is that he is cocky and he's arrogant and he's, he's quite mean to Tiresias. And so Tiresias eventually responds in time and tells him all of these things that we know to be the truth. So Oedipus learns from Tiresias, you're the one. Does he believe him right away or does he have his doubts? No, not at all. In fact, he says, look, okay, let's, let's, let's connect the dots here. Why, where do we get this message from? We got this message from Creon. Maybe Creon is plotting to be king. You know, Creon is, is his queen's brother. He's the brother-in-law. So plausible, right? This guy could be working against him in these in these royal houses and 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 there are succession questions and so on. I mean maybe. There's there's nothing to indicate that Creon is working at cross purposes at any time. I think Oedipus is grasping for straws when he hears um this pronouncement that he's he's the one being put up on trial because he he thinks it can't possibly be true at that point. And so and of course Creon will tell you, in fact he does in the next scene, Oedipus, after he sort of sends off Tiresias, he brings Creon to bear. And Creon starts out the scene with a monologue to the elders of Thebes. He says, why would I want to be king? I've already got all the privileges of power and none of the responsibilities. Why would I ever want this job, right? And and the, the, the elders seem to think, yeah, that's, that's, that's that sounds about right. And Oedipus is having none of it and really just, it, it's wild accusations and invective. And um, again, we see Oedipus is a man of temper. 
And he really, and of course, Creon then, of course, responds in kind. So now the two encounters he's had, first with Tiresias, again with Creon, Oedipus has acted, reacted with anger and uh, arrogance. And he's, so he's hot headed. And we actually see that in the murder we're investigating, right? How could, how could that be possible? How, how could two men meet at a crossroads and it end in violence and death this way? Maybe it's because Oedipus is kind of hot-headed. Well, I always say that that meeting at the crossroads is uh, the first documented incident of road rage uh, that we have in the literature. And we learn about it. We learn the details of it, some of them at least, from Oedipus's wife, mm-hmm. who is Jocasta, because he he talks to her. He says, "I've got this problem." Uh, what does she tell him when he when he learns about the prophecy? Well, Jocasta comes out because she hears the boys fighting. Right, him and Creon are basically yelling at each other in public. Everyone can hear. She's not even there. She's in the palace, and she can hear it. So she comes out first to just sort of come on, boys, stop. And then Oedipus and her have. A long conversation, and he tells her what's what's upset him so much and what his worries are, and we get some unpacking of Oedipus's story, what brought him to Thebes initially. This is when things start to come together, because not only is Oedipus bringing up elements of the story, so too is Jocasta bringing up elements of her and King Laius's story. And so I always say, you know, for an actress in particular playing Jocasta, there is got to be a moment in there where Jocasta thinks, uh-oh, <laughs> like this this could be something really bad based on what I know. Um, and I think it's a real challenge for the actress to decide what moment does she figure it out? Because that's going to obviously affect the rest of that scene uh, with Oedipus, where she's now thinking, oh, wait a minute, what what have I done? She has that moment, and then one of her responses is, Oedipus, stop. Stop asking questions. Like, maybe this will go away. Yeah, it's like, it's like you know, it's like some fantasy movie or something where the young hero goes on a quest and everyone he runs into is like, no, 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 you, you really don't want to go forward with this. And uh, there's there's no red lights for Oedipus. He's going to go forward with it. He's, he's very bullheaded. And, you know, in a way, he has to be. He is he is doing what he does best. He has a temper. He's arrogant. He's cocky. But he also was the savior of Thebes, and he's trying to do it again. And so he's not going to let anything stop him, even well-meaning, close acquaintances who tell him, you probably don't want to keep going, buddy. He continues to investigate, though. The evidence mounts and mounts. Does Oedipus then, or when does Oedipus suddenly realize, uh-oh, Well, here's the thing, right? Oedipus, from the get-go, right? What causes all of this, right? And I don't know how much you want to go into the backstory here, but Oedipus is, of course, the child of Laius and Theocasta. And while he's still in the womb, they go to the Oracle. And the Oracle tells them that this boy is going to grow up to murder his father and marry his mother and have children with her. And they're they're horrified, and so they decide to solve the problem. Now, they're not willing to take murder of a child onto their hands, and so instead they just put him out to the elements, basically. They give him to a person that's going to take him out of the palace. They pierce his ankles um, so that he, you know, he's not going to be able to move, and the idea is that he'll be exposed. An animal or the weather will get to him, and the problem is solved. Of course, the guy that they send to do it can't do it, and he passes him off to a shepherd. That shepherd is from Corinth. 
takes Oedipus to Corinth. Turns out the king and queen there, Polybus and Merope, don't have any children. They're happy to adopt this, this foundling. And so they do. So Oedipus spends his young life being raised as the prince of Corinth. And he does not know that he is adopted. He's, he's not told that. So we fast forward a bit, and Oedipus is at a, basically a party. And he says, uh, a drunken man maundering in his cups told me that I am not my father's son. And he's upset by this. And so he goes to his parents and he says, you know, what's the story here? They say, no, 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 that's not true. But he still has enough doubt that he then takes the question to the oracle. And this is where we really, you know, if we wanted to fault Oedipus, right? Um, our point of view is very different from the Greek point of view, right? The Greek point of view is that this is fated to happen Nothing Oedipus does is going to change that. But from our modern perspective, right, he goes to the oracle with one question, am I my father's son? That's the question he asks the oracle. And guess what? The oracle doesn't answer that question. The oracle just starts talking about the horrible things he's supposed to do. So, you know, at that moment, your marching orders, Oedipus says, I got to get out of here. I don't want to be by Polybus and Merope because I think they still may be my parents. And so I got to get out of here. But there's a doubt. There's a doubt right there because the oracle doesn't answer the question. And Oedipus, you know, I always tell my students there's two rules for living if you're Oedipus at this point, right? One is don't kill anyone. And the other is, you know, make sure the woman you marry is younger than you. That'll, that'll solve it, right? You know, and, and of course, Oedipus is not going to be able to do this. Um, he's going to run away from Corinth and he thinks he's gotten away. And it's on when he's leaving Corinth that he runs into King Laius. And I, I talk about that as a, a road rage incident. They both come to a crossroads at the same time. And they both feel, because of the privileged lives that they've led, that they should be the one to go first, right? This isn't like Hillsdale, uh, where we live, where, you know, everybody's waving everyone to go forward at the stop sign. This is, I got here first. I want to go first. And um, they exchange words. They yell at each other. And uh, Laius seems to smack him over the head on the way by, and Oedipus loses it. And he kills not only the king, but his entire entourage, save one person that gets away. And just a little bit of Midwestern hospitality would have changed the whole thing, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. You go ahead. Now, why is this play gripped our imagination so much? It's, it's, I mean, what a predicament, first of all. But then this is, I think, the most famous or most infamous ancient Greek drama. There are so many and they're great, but this this one tops them all. This is really the foundation. I think this is the foundation for Western theatrical literature for the next 2,000 years. And it is partially because about 100 years after the fact, Aristotle is going to say, you know what? This is the best tragedy, right? And, you know, Aristotle has six elements of theater that he talks about. And we can see, looking through Oedipus, that each of those elements are done in a very superb sort of way. And I don't have to talk about all six right now, but, you know, for example, Aristotle says the most important thing in tragedy for the author is plot. That is to say, how you tell the story, right? We're not starting the story with Laius finding out the prophecy about his son. We're not starting the story with Oedipus and the Sphinx. We're starting the story after Oedipus has been living happily with Yocasta as husband and wife, king and queen. They've had four kids together. And that's where we start with this plague, right? With this problem that Oedipus is there to solve. So 
you know, Aristotle says plot is something that everything in the play should be directly linked to the main story. There shouldn't be subplots. There shouldn't be additional things. And of course, Oedipus does this. Every scene is crucial to the search for the truth that Oedipus is undergoing. One of our takeaway points may be then hire Aristotle as your publicist. (laughs) Not a bad outcome for Oedipus Rex and Sophocles. There's another famous name that we attach to this play, and that's Freud, (laughs) who I don't know if he's a publicist for this play, but he gave us the Oedipus complex. And and James, I don't want to do a deep dive here and pretend Mm. to be psychologists, but help us understand the connection between this play and Freud and how we think about this work. The thing here is that Sophocles gives it to us, right? Because uh, when Oedipus, when they start talking about this terrible prophecy, there's the line that Yocasta says, basically, like, what what man hasn't dreamt of his mother or something like that in, in there. And so, you know, Freud is all about the subconscious and the unconscious mind, right? The interpretation of dreams, right? Freud is very interested in why people behave that they do. And a lot of things for Freud happened because of things that happened in sort of our pre-conscious state when we were very young. And so Freud comes up with this whole idea, the Oedipus complex and the Electra complex, that is to say that children fantasize about uh, being with their uh, other sex parent. It's certainly been played up a bit. Freud's ideas have influenced the play. Is it an interesting idea or is it a sick theory? I... I think it's an interesting idea. I think that it it it's it's sort of very base and sort of animalistic and like you know at our root sort of stuff. So I don't know. I I don't hold a lot of stock with it. I I don't I I don't think that it helps with an understanding of the play. It does help us understand what's so deeply disturbing about the conundrum though, right? I mean it it's a double taboo. Of patricide mm-hmm. and incest. I mean, one of these by itself is bad enough. And here here we are combining them in a kind of hybrid vigor. I mean, Oedipus yeah. could not be in a worse position, yeah. and there's nothing he could have done to stop it. And that's the thing. He's such a great person, and yet he is du- yeah, double taboo. He's the worst of the worst. He, you know, these are the kinds of things that make people's skin crawl. That's why they're taboo. And so to see Oedipus pretty much duped into it is um, it's, it's terrifying really, because, you know, here's one of the things that Aristotle says about tragedy. And again, he uses Oedipus as, as his example. He says, look, the whole point of tragedy is uh, emotional catharsis. Okay. That is to say, we feel things very profoundly. And Aristotle thought that catharsis came from two emotional responses. The first, uh, well, it's pity and fear. In tragedy, right? And if we break those down, pity is sympathy. I feel bad for you. I feel bad for that guy. I feel bad that Oedipus got this terrible, you know, drew this terrible draw. On the other side, fear, I'm afraid, that's empathy. No, I I don't think I've, you know, killed my father or slept with my mother, but I'm a really angry person, just like Oedipus, or I might have some of the same flaws as this guy, right? And it's that combination of pity, sympathy, empathy, fear that for Aristotle led to an emotional response that was so strong that it resulted in an involuntary uh, physical reaction. So Oedipus learns the horrible truth. He recognizes what happens. 
what does he do when he knows? Well, it uh, happens pretty quickly. Um, it happens first because he gets a message from Corinth. And his father, well, who he thinks his father, Polybus, has passed away. And they're actually coming to say, hey, we want you to be king of Corinth. So that's good news in, in some way, right? I, 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 I didn't kill him. Obviously, you know, the prophecy hasn't come true. And then it comes out, well, no, you weren't, you weren't the king's real son. And now all of a sudden, the sort of abyss is opened up there. And so we're left with one doubt. And that is the witness to the murder of Laius, the one guy that got away, had maintained a story that it was robbers, marauders, a group of people came down upon us and killed everyone and find out that, nope, it was just one guy, Oedipus. And, you know, that's the other thing, I guess, when we, we when he finds out, right, it's Oedipus, you know, the name means swollen foot. The reason he's able to solve the riddle of the Sphinx is because he's probably walked with a cane his entire life. Oedipus is not the most likely candidate to murder a king. So this is, I think, makes us think that the gods are somehow involved in this, right? Or the the passions. Uh, Oedipus is not in control of his actions. Anyway, he gets into another state like that when he figures out it's him and he um, he blinds himself, uh, pokes his eyeballs out. And part of this is because he's riffing on Tiresias, who was blind, who could see everything. And now Oedipus has perfect sight and can't see. And so he he blinds himself um, at that moment. And that is disgusting, blinding yourself. Mm-hmm. It's also pitiful. Is it heroic in an unexpected way? I, I don't know if I would call it heroic. It's horrific, and that's meant to be the point, right? The other option is the option that Yocasta has. When she finds out it's true, she hangs herself. So she commits suicide. Oedipus blinds himself. And now Oedipus has set himself up. He, he early in the play, when the, he hears about the fact that this murderer is still around, he announces a terrible curse. All of these things, bad things that are going to happen to the person or to anybody that hid the person, and all of that stuff is coming down on him. And what it boils down to essentially is exile. And, you know, what we have to understand about exile is that the Greek city-states weren't going to just, you know, welcome you in, right? Oedipus isn't going to be welcomed into Thebes except for the fact that he saves the city, right? Being in exile means being sort of homeless and friendless and without a nation. And that's what he's called down upon himself, um, here And so I think perhaps he doesn't commit suicide because he feels that he deserves to suffer. And so he'll take away his vision and he'll also suffer as an exile. Is he a good ruler in the end? Does his action end the plague? Well, he has saved Thebes again from the plague, just as he saved Thebes from the Sphinx. And so in that regard, sure, right? He solved the two, two of the great problems. You know, Thebes is always, always having problems, right? It's one of those great mythological cities where the, the family lines are always having catastrophes. But these are pretty big ones, and he solved both of them. He is a good ruler, I think, um, up until a certain point. And I think he gets pressed beyond his capacity to be a good ruler ruler the chorus at the very end gets the last word the last line they say no man is fortunate until he is dead Mm. what does that mean my my gosh that's a despairing line what do you make of it well i think we are all supposed to feel badly for oedipus and for the city of thebes and you know it's 
it's really these these people are playthings for the gods. Oedipus is this great guy, this leader, this this charismatic charismatic uh, individual is just beaten down in the worst way possible. Men are playthings for the gods, and the gods, of course, in the Greek mythology are very human. They're usually dealing with very human emotions on a grand scale. And so it turns out that Apollo is responsible for all of this. And it's, it's just part of the sort of generation after generation of somebody upset me. And so your family is going to suffer for it. And so, you know, Oedipus doesn't do anything to deserve this. Not this. He's guilty of mistakes, right? He's guilty of a lot of hubris or false pride you know he's he's guilty of being wrathful he's guilty of not listening but he didn't deserve this and i think that's that's the sort of lesson we take from this is is you know there but for the grace of god go all of us so maybe we're not truly fortunate until we're out of here this is a message from our friends at american habits from the state policy network we the people do you ever think about what that means and what happened to it? We the people certainly did not mean an imperial city full of unelected bureaucrats deciding everything from kindergarten curricula to nursing home funding formulas. We the people mean self-government, a free people deciding most things in their families and communities and delegating some authority to their towns and states while passing along just a small amount of that power to the national government. How did things get so upside down at American Habits? We tell stories of real people with real solutions, all working to restore federalism and self-government. If you're a public official, come get involved. If you're a citizen, come and see the new standard for American leadership. No matter who you are, come help us renew the forgotten but not lost habit of American self-government. Visit AmericanHabits.org to learn more. That's AmericanHabits.org. The Greek course gets this last word, this striking last word. The fact there's a chorus does call attention to the the Greekness of this drama. And James, help us understand what is distinctive about Greek drama? What makes it different from Shakespeare's Elizabethan drama or modern drama? What is Greek about this play? Well, Greek theater begins as the marriage of two different tastes. I always say it's like the great Reese's peanut butter cup theory of the origins of world theater. You have two tastes, two tastes that taste great and now they taste great together. So on the one hand, the Greeks had something called a dithyramb. And a dithyramb was a chorus of men that sang odes to the god Dionysus. And they started making these dithyrams. They put them in competitions with each other. And, you know, competition breeds innovation. And so as the dithyrams are competing with each other. They're kind of doing like what I call praise songs, you know, lots of hallelujahs, not lots of story. And so a guy comes along named Arian and he adds storytelling. He says, look, if we're going to sing odes to the God Dionysus, why don't we tell stories about the God, right? And that wins. And so then the next innovation coming on a bit later is a guy named Thespis, the first actor from which we get Thespian. Thespis was a rhapsode, like Homer, someone who read around telling stories about the Trojan War and about the myths and the gods. And they decided, what, w- what would happen if we put Thespis in front of the chorus and he told a story and we kind of backed him up? And that's was it won. And that was so different that they called, they said, this isn't a dithyram anymore. This is something we want to call tragedy. And we're going to move on for about a hundred years with this kind of tragedy. And then eventually the big three Greek playwrights of the golden age, Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides are going to make some innovations to it. And so the chorus, the dithyram was originally 50 men. Aeschylus comes along and he reduces the size of the chorus to 12 
and he adds a second actor, a second thespis. So now all of a sudden we have the possibility for dialogue without the chorus, right? Now, when Sophocles comes along, you note that there are three speaking roles on stage a lot, and that's because he adds a third actor. Now we have the formula, and the formula is this. We have a prologue where we introduce the problem of the play. We have a paradox where the chorus enters and sings about what's going on. And then we have alternating scenes and choral odes. So we have a scene between you know, Oedipus and Creon, then we have a choral ode about it. Then we have a scene between Oedipus and Yocasta, we have a choral ode about it. And all the way to the end, the exodus when the chorus leaves at the end of the night. So the idea here of Greek drama was that you'd have these acted scenes of actors, and then you'd have a choral ode, which was kind of like contemplation. I always say that a chorus in the Greek tragedy is like a professional audience member because they're voicing the questions that we have, the concerns that we have. They're they're speaking for us and to us in a way. And so that's the model that the Greeks develop here for tragedy during the Golden Age. You've staged Oedipus Rex as a, as a director. You've also played Creon. Let's start with the staging of it, though. What are the special challenges of staging Oedipus Rex? What are the basic creative decisions you have to make? What is that like? Well, you have to make a decision, you know, what is this going to look like? Do I want to make it look like it might have looked in Athens in the 4th century BC, the 5th century BC? Or do I want to make it look like it's a modern play that's easy for us to access? So that, that's the first thing. What are you going to do with the chorus? You know, the, the thing is, is that as a theater historian, I know that we don't know a lot of absolute truths about what Greek tragedy looked like in performance. You know, the Italians during the Renaissance came up with opera and that was their attempt at creating what they thought Greek tragedy might have sounded like. And so, you know, there seems to have always been a musical, sung, and or chanted element to it. And so you have to decide, you know, which which way do I want to go with this? I've seen productions, I've directed productions where the chorus is very musical. And I've seen and directed productions where the chorus is they're poetic, but they're just speaking their words as additional lines of dialogue and sort of everything in between. Um, we know that the Greeks, the choral odes were also danced. There was a choreography element to that. So this was something that had some spectacular motion involved in it. How much do we want to do with that? You know, if you're going to do this Greek play, I remember thinking, I need a triple threat. I need people who can act and sing and dance. And I think most productions choose to focus on one or two of those three things. You've played Creon, <laughs> the brother of Oedipus. When and where did you do that? And does playing a character, and Creon in particular, give you special insight into the play? Well, you know, that was my first play as an undergraduate at Eureka College in central Illinois. It was my first college production. It was the first production of my freshman year. So, I mean, I got out of orientation and auditioned the next night, and I realized I was in the running for one of the spoken parts. And uh, it was huge. It was huge to get that. I knew I, knew I wasn't going to get Oedipus. Um, I, didn't, I didn't think I'd get Creon. I thought maybe I was being considered for something smaller. But it's the insight. I just, I still remember, you know, the feeling that when he gives that monologue, when Creon gives his first monologue after he's been accused, this is a man who is deeply upset, offended, distressed. He is an honest man. He is completely innocent of what Oedipus is 
Um, and I just, I think all that hurt, all of that pain that he has when all of a sudden his brother-in-law is turning on him like that. And so it's also, it's, it's, a, it's an appeal to logic, right? Creon is in his first monologue appeal. Think it out, reason it out as I have. I remember that line, you know, and the idea is why would I want this? Why would I want to be you? You know, and I think, I think seeing the play from that perspective was, um, was really telling because you know, I'd read it and seen uh, video. I'd seen it on a, a, a film production in, in high school. And so I knew the play coming in, but I didn't know it well. And playing that part, and I always say when, when students hear and act roles, especially in these great classic works, you, you definitely feel it in a different way than reading it or even watching it. One more question, James. What's the case for Oedipus Rex today? It's a timeless classic. Everybody should know it. But does it say something special to us right now? Oh, sure. I mean, I was telling my students the other day, Oedipus is is, is actually, you know, one, one popular way of, of naming the play is Oedipus Tyrannus or Oedipus the Tyrant. And, you know, the tyrants were always looking to give the people things so they'd still be in charge. Oedipus is fighting for his political life at the beginning of the play, right? And that's something that's instantly understandable to anyone paying any attention to American politics in the last, well, really, for the whole republic, but in the last 10 years or so. I mean, this is high-stakes drama. I remember a production uh, that the National Theater did in England with Michael Pennington as Oedipus, and he played Oedipus as a glad handing politician like he if somebody would have given him a baby he would have kissed it right as he's as he's pronouncing this terrible curse right on on and, and assuring people that they're gonna do stuff so i think i think the political situation is instantly understandable i i think also the idea that we put up um blocks you know we we just we get narrowed in like i gotta find the truth i gotta find the truth and nobody's considering whether he should be finding the truth or what that's going to entail. I think a lot of us can get locked into a, a quest, if you will, a journey without doing it rationally. And, uh, you know, there's, there's something here about, I always say, look, if Oedipus is fated to do all of these horrible things, he can at least be a decent person <laughs> outside of all of that. Right. And he's not really, I mean, he's not, he's, he's desperate and he's, He's wild. I, I always get the sense that, you know, and of course, Oedipus is a tremendously difficult role to play um, because, you know, you have to peak. You have to follow the dramatic arc that Sophocles has created. And it's what we call traditional crisis drama. And so the biggest moment has to be that climax. Right. And and the thing that really sold this play, and maybe this is the reason it's still relevant for Aristotle, is the best tragedies have a moment of recognition and reversal. And Aristotle says the best tragedies are when that moment of recognition, I'm the killer, is tied with the reversal. Well, now I got to blind myself and now I can't be king anymore and I'm going to exile myself. And that's what happens in Oedipus. And it, it really sets the tone, you know, this play and Aristotle's poetics for what we call crisis drama. And if you look at you know, the typical television shows, an hour-long drama sort of show. They follow the same kind of basic model here. And so Oedipus is very informative about a way of storytelling that's been popular for almost 2,500 years. James Brandon, thanks so much for joining us and telling us all about Oedipus Rex by Sophocles. Thanks, John. Happy to be here. 
You've just listened to The Great Books Podcast, a production of National Review. Please subscribe to The Great Books Podcast and leave reviews of the show. That helps us keep this podcast going. Send me your ideas for future episodes. You can reach me through our website at heymiller.com on Twitter. My handle is at heymiller. Last of all, special thanks to all of you for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of The Great Books Podcast.